I think with the pandemic ongoing, the ability to transition to digital consents um, as the norm is really monumentally important. Um, and I'm hoping that all those listening would keep that in mind. This is a perfect opportunity to transition. Welcome to the Coronavirus Business Response Series of Inside Reproductive Health. Here, you'll be updated on the latest insights on managing and owning a fertility business or IVF center during the COVID-19 pandemic. We put out free podcasts, webinars, and articles as soon as new topics arise, so make sure to subscribe to stay updated. The best way to help us in return is to share this episode with someone in the fertility field that would find it useful. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Centers are really all across the board with uh, what they're doing now, and uh, I imagine that will continue to change as certain restrictions, both from uh, CDC and WHO and ASRM guidelines change and local regulations change in terms of uh, in terms of shelter in place. Um, and all of that will affect what fertility centers are doing, what kinds of treatment at different times. Um, and there might not be uh, one uh, perfect legal precedent for anyone to, to follow right now. And again, we're, there's no legal advice here, but I wanted to bring on a, a, some people that do have uh, experience with uh, helping with consent. Um, so I have Dr. Stephen Katz on. Dr. Katz is an REI. He also owns a company called REI Protect, which helps uh, practices, REI practices um, with insurance that's exclusive to the field of fertility. And I have Jeff Eisner and Taylor Stein on, who are the principals of Engaged MD. Many of you know them for their learning modules and for their consenting platform. So, so there's a, a few things that we're, we're figuring out together with all of you on, and that's what, what do we need to consider when we're having people consent? And there's some of you that have ha been having people sign consents when they come into the office for just about everything that you do consents for. And in many cases, that's just no longer an option. So how do, do we do that digitally now? Um, so, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for, for coming on. We pass, perhaps I start with you um, and just say, you know, what are you seeing in terms of uh, how practices are, are consenting right now and, and what do they need to think about? And I know that's broad, but we'll chisel away from there. Well, I think the consent process, as we've talked about, Griffin, is critically important before the COVID-19 pandemic, during and certainly afterwards. Um, the majority of programs across, across the country, the vast majority are following the ASRM guidelines. And so they're not starting new cycles per se. And therefore I think the need to consent for new cycle starts has somewhat diminished. But the importance of consenting for medical care during the pandemic has of course risen to the top. So for Clinics that are providing essential care, essential defined for just this discussion with no new cycles, are certainly presenting consenting and informed consent for the issues surrounding the pandemic. So offices must have a consent paper or video, as we're going to talk about, talking about the risks of fertility care during the pandemic. 
a couple of good examples of information that needs to be part of the consent. We don't know the future. We don't know necessarily the effect of pregnancy moving forward. We don't know specifically about the possibility that care could be canceled at any time, whether due to an escalation of the pandemic, um, the COVID-19 virus entering the medical office in which you're having your care, orders from the state government in which you live in. Those are really important aspects in the current consent portfolio because patients are sometimes choosing to pursue fertility care under the realm of it being essential, but there are risks. Those risks I just mentioned. Most importantly, they can start a cycle, but it may be canceled early, middle, or late stage before the opportunity for fertilization could occur. So what am I seeing across the board? I'm seeing focus on informed consent relative to the pandemic. Yeah, I'll just um, second that. We've seen a, a flooding of COVID consents come into our team to upload for digital signature. Of course, it's a totally different world where we're trying to do things as remotely as possible. Points Dr. Katz mentioned have been on pretty much every single consent we've seen. Uh, the risk of cancellation has definitely been at the forefront and just understanding there's a lot we don't know right now. And there is a chance that things can change rapidly and we may need to cancel your cycle in the middle of things just because of unforeseen circumstances. Is that mostly what the consent is, is talking about, Jeff? And I want to preface this for everyone that Jeff was really adamant before we had a call about the <laughs> webinar just to talk about that he didn't want to come off as as suggesting, you know, is, is providing any kind of advice or, or suggesting what uh, clinics should do. And I told them that was totally fine. It's not going to stop me from being curious, which is just generally, are, they, are these consents mostly focused on the possibility of, of stopping? Are, they, are some of them not, not just stopping, but that like, here's what the ASRM guidelines say, and we might be doing something different in this case. What, what, are, they, what are these consents generally dealing with that you're being asked to upload? Yeah, we've seen a wide array, just to be a wide array. And just to be clear, not a lawyer, don't want to provide legal advice, but I do think it's important we're in a unique position in that we see a lot of different centers approaches. So I'm more than happy to share kind of a summary of what we're seeing in these consents. And I've taken a significant amount of time to kind of read through these just to get a sense of what people are talking about. I think Dr. Katz really hit the nail on the head. It's really important for clinics, it seems to state that it's a situation in flux. Review the current guidelines, understand what the current risks are, what we know and what we don't know. I think every consent that I've seen have ta has talked about what prior data does support in terms of febrile illness and any pregnancy that may occur and very clearly states that we don't know a lot of things. The risks are unclear. We don't have enough data to actually clearly state what may or may not happen. Dr. Katz mentioned about the risk of transmission. Unfortunately, if you do proceed with care, even at a point where we relax social distancing in the future and we're back to normal, I think it's important to realize that COVID is likely going to be around for a long time and there is a risk of transmission and it's going to be a long time before we actually know all of the fine details about what those risks entail. I would say all of those things have been on top of the risk of cancellation and pretty much every single consent form I've seen. So, and again, Jeff is talking about a summary. So it doesn't mean it, and that's, so that's just a summary of what they're being given. It doesn't necessarily mean that 
what they're being given is always what people is the best that they could be using. Um, and I think that's important to, to reinforce. So we have, it, we're, we're talking about uh, the ASRM guidelines now, as well as just what the risk of COVID-19 might be. Dr. Katz, I, I do want to ask Dr. Katz is, are you seeing anything from insurance companies regarding this? Is there any guidance from insurance companies? Are there any warnings for insurance companies for, uh, for those centers that are still doing treatment right now at this time? Griffin, in our program, 100% of our members' constituents are all following the ASRM guidelines to some degree. Well, but that to some degree, Dr. Katz, means that some are not following it to some degree. They're broad guidelines and there are some people that are saying, okay, well, we're, we're still going to do checklist testing. We're still going to have folks come through. And then others have said, you know, we're going to do, they're over 38. We're going to proceed with, uh, we're going to do retrievals and then we'll do freeze alls. Um, so there is a, a big range of things that are happening. Yes. And I see the smile on your face. And um, there is, I mean, there's an interpretation of the guidelines going on. What I can say is, to my knowledge, programs are, start, are not starting new stimulation cycles, but plenty of them are finishing cycles and doing telemedicine interviews and, depending on the particular situation, getting prepared to start new cycles when that day comes. Relative to the discussion that Jeff was so prominent on, I think programs also have to prepare to come out of this. So the COVID-19 consent has to have language either now or in the short-term future about we're back to a new normal, COVID-19 is still around, so we need to make sure that you're informed about COVID-19 once the new normal comes back. So I think what we'll talk a little bit about later in this webinar is the fact that it's very possible that some areas of the country go back to a new normal. The guidelines are more limited or less limited for certain areas of the country, Wyoming, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Arizona versus Manhattan. So we have to be able to, as a group, be prepared for some areas of the country to go back to providing maybe full care versus some of the areas of the country not being able to do so under potentially orders of the state government. So the consent process, it has to be forward thinking, okay, we're potentially in Arizona, we now can start new cycles. Those consents have to portray that informed risk. Yeah, it, it reminds yeah. me, it's um, very different in many aspects, but it reminds me a lot of consenting for Zika virus. This mm -hmm. is the new normal. People need to be aware of everything that's, that they need to be informed about in order to properly consent and go through with treatment. Yeah. I just want to touch on one more thing um, that Dr. Katz alluded to, and we can uh, get into this a little bit more later if there's interest in time. A big concern that we've been hearing from practices and, you know, over the past couple of weeks, things have ebbed and flowed, but there's a lot of concern that when they do get back 
to seeing patients, whether it's regionally or across the board, that they're going to be overwhelmed because of pent-up demand. And there's a real concern that at that point, physicians and their staffs already were overwhelmed in many cases and had a difficult time giving proper informed consent. And a lot of staff members have been furloughed or laid off at various clinics. And so combining that with a huge rush of patients when things come back up, it's really important that you've thought through that process and what's going to happen and what you can do in the meantime to sort of alleviate some of that pain because you can't cut corners when it comes to patient education and consent and discussing about financials and carrier screening and all the things that have to go into every cycle no matter what just because you're overwhelmed and short-staffed. So we've been hearing a lot of clinics thinking about what they can be doing to prepare and happy to talk about that a little bit, but I'm also interested from the group if your practice has thought about this and if you have any ideas. But Griffin, I'll let you pace things, but if there's time, I would be, I think that would be interesting discussion for the group. Uh, yeah, I think if, for those of you that, that heard Taylor's question, if you can just answer that in the replying to all panelists and attendees, would be really helpful just to see in the chat if you can kind of share that with the group of what are you doing to stay engaged with your patients while they wait for the office to reopen. I'm, I'm kind of curious. I would just like to see, have you stopped doing IVF egg retrievals? For those of you on the call, we can't see who is answering the poll questions. About three quarters saying that they have stopped. And so we've got 32 yeses. We have stopped. So it's 82% have stopped and seven said they have not stopped. So 18% have not stopped retrieval. So I do think this is really important for people to consider because at some point might be things for different people. Others might start when, when others stop and, and others might stop as, as others begin. We have a one question uh, from Dr. Landra, which is what would be the regional determinants for a practice for change to change the type of treatments they are okay to do? Number of COVID cases in the region, status of PPE supply, burden of the health system in the region. I, I'm not sure that this is a, a question we can answer. Dr. Cass, do you want to take a stab at it? Sure, I'll take a stab at it. I think it'll, there'll be a direction from your state government. Some cities like St. Louis and Missouri took the lead over the entire state government in Missouri. But most of the time, it's the governor of the state that will determine the rules and regulations of that state. Yes, I think if I'm taking a stab at it, it will be the slope of the curve in COVID-19 cases and other related aspects that may allow a loosening of the regulation. Thank you for that. I do have a question for Taylor and Jeff, which is the way that I've been approaching this is from our responsibility, from Fertility Bridge's responsibility, is we need to help people pack their new patient waiting list as much as possible to convert them to video consults. For those that are doing checklist testing, they'll either do that now or later if they're they're not. And, and we need to have that waiting list of, of patients that are ready to go to treatment as much as possible. And that will involve not having a, sh a short staff that is rushing through consensus at later times. So to the extent that people can do some of those consents now, and we talked about carrier screening as something that can be done uh, before 
all operations return to normal. Having these consents done digitally is important because in many cases, we're not even allowing the partner into the office anymore. So for those that have kind of resisted doing consents digitally before, now the impetus is upon us. In normal times, what's, I guess, describe the process of someone coming around to doing consents digitally for the first time in normal times. And then maybe we compare that to the speed at which it has to happen now or is happening now. Yeah, Jeff, uh, let me, let me take the first part of that question and then Jeff, you can uh, fill in the details. So there are a number of things as, as the folks who work at practices know better than, than even we do that are done at the office normally, but with the right technology can be done remotely. We have been moving that stuff, some of that stuff into the home over the years, but it's always been in support of in-practice consultations because that's been the standard. And before COVID-19, we had not seen a big move to Zoom conferencing for consultations in the fertility world. It's something that a lot of other specialties have adopted, but fertility, we haven't seen much of it. And so we've been taking a microscope to this in talking to practices and hearing what they're doing in sort of rethinking the flow ourselves. And there is a lot that can be moved to the home in, in coordination with video visits. So not only do we have the electronic form signing capability and the, the video consenting, there are folks like Semaphore and other carrier screening companies that are trying to rethink their processes to make, to enable um, carrier screening to go on without the patient and partner needing to uh, come into the office. We've heard things like increased use of mobile phlebotomy, for example, and, and we're helping to support them with, um, with uh, consenting processes. So, and a big part of that is because oftentimes it can take up to two weeks from when you actually do the draw to, to getting the results, to having your genetic counseling consultation, to then being able to start. So being able to push that earlier can help ease the burden when the offices do reopen. And Jeff, I'm going to pass this off to you to talk some more about other things that we've heard and things that, that we're working on to help support. Yeah, in terms of um, actually implementing a new signature solution. So well, let's talk about informed consent a little bit more globally. We still need to educate with relevant information. We still need to provide an opportunity to answer questions and um, we need to still get these documents signed. So I'll touch on those three things differently in the three ways that we've talked about it at EngageMD and the way that we're supporting our practices, hopefully it will be helpful to everybody. So let's start with educating with relevant information. We've been providing educational materials in the form of video to make sure that patients do have access to all of these resources and they can do it on their phone, safe at home. Zoom and telehealth solutions are a great way to have those consults to round out that information and to ensure that questions are answered. And then, of course, getting the, the consent signed themselves, there's digital e-signature tools that are available to use. People were already doing a lot of this before COVID. Like you said, COVID was an impetus for fast change for a lot of clinics trying to react to all this. Big thing that people need to work through is just this change in mentality and how do you actually go 
digital with all of these paper consent forms. Um, I think the, the most common question that we receive is, well, people are doing this remotely. How can we be certain that the right people are signing at the right time? That's always the biggest question with e-sign, isn't it? And I remember you talking about this, Jeff, on in, in Dr. Katz's meeting a, a few weeks ago. And as you were talking about it, I was thinking, my assistant signs almost everything for me. We recently just did the, the payroll protection program and uh, that application for the bank. And I signed that if it's something of that gravity, but if it's like countersigning a, a client change order or, you know, my assistant is the one doing a lot of that signing and maybe that isn't best practice. And maybe the, the attorneys on here are, are scoffing, but I think that <laughs> is, that is something that happens. So please do talk about that some more. Cause I think that is a, a concern that a lot would have. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, we've explored this issue very thoroughly, of course, as we try and improve the way that you can electronically sign. And it, it all comes down to risk mitigation at the end of the day, but there are many great mechanisms that are in place to authenticate with an electronic signature system. So you can take a look at your consents and understand what are the more sensitive ones, what are the less sensitive ones. For the less sensitive ones, you may not need the same level of authentication as the more sensitive ones. For the more sensitive ones, some of the things that we try and recommend practices implement our uh, dual factor authentication through a text message authentication to each person's mobile phone you can do government ID authentication. So people actually have to take pictures of their IDs themselves and those are validated against a government database. So just because it's digital doesn't mean that it can't be uh, a successful and secure way to obtain signatures. A thorough process has been put in place to ensure that the right people are signing the right documents. Dr. Katz, do you have anything to add? I can't really say enough about digital consents. If we think back to the latter part of the 20th century, the last three decades or so, our offices used to hand patients consent forms, pieces of paper that said, go home and read it. And if you have any questions, feel free to come in and let's discuss. And I was always afraid that patients really didn't even read them. They got bored with it and they signed it and they brought it in and that was the end. And so when complications developed and they even went to court trials, patients would always say they really, really didn't have a good understanding of what they were doing. And so now with the ability to look at video consents, digital consents, have the comprehension questions. It gives all of us a peace of mind that patients actually have a more thorough understanding of the procedures, the risks, the complications, the possible outcome. So I think with the pandemic ongoing, the ability to transition to digital consents um, as the norm is really monumentally important. Um, and I'm hoping that all those listening would keep that in mind. This is a perfect opportunity to transition. Jeff wrote a nice uh, paper on our website about the security behind e-signatures. And I think a lot of our programs have really accepted that because you're right, Griffin, as of a few months ago, people were really questioning the validity of e-signatures. And I think we're really moving in the right direction um, as it relates to informed consent. So um, <laughs> we have a, a poll question right now, is, which is to what extent do you use digital consents at your practice? Dr. Katz, Jeff, and Taylor, we had four options. 
uh, which is to what extent do you use digital consent in your practice? We have yes for all of them, yes to most, uh, some but not most, uh, and then no, none of our consents are digital. So all, most, some, none. What do you think the breakout is? I'm going to guess that this is a, a very forward-thinking group, and, uh, and I'm going to say that 80% are either yes all or yes most. Okay, so 80% yes and most is Taylor's guess, Dr. Katz and Jeff. I'll be a little bit more pessimistic. I'll go with around 45% or yes all or yes most, and then the rest fall under no or none, no some or no none. So say that, say that one more time, Jeff. That was 45% to the uh, yes buckets. Okay. So I'll keep it straight, Griff. I'm going to say each one of those circles is going to get 25%. I think 25% none, 25% some, but not most, and so on. I think it's pretty close to split. Pretty close to in between Dr. Katz and Jeff. Uh, Taylor, you're way too optimistic. Hey, wait. hey, you know what? You can't lose by being optimistic. I don't know. You guys brought your audiences too. If this were the Fertility Bridge audience, of course, it would be all forward thinking, but we, uh, we, are, we are all across the board. And we had 22% say yes to all, 22% say yes to most, 34% say some, but not most, and 22% are not using digital consents at all. So for the people not using digital consents at all, if I could add something, I know practices are incredibly busy at this time, but it's also a good time to consider transition to at least most consents going digitally. If that's the pearl I could leave today, please at least look at it. I think it's vital for enhanced informed consent. It's vital for better risk management. And really, it's better for patient care. The more they know, the more the patients feel comfortable, the better the outcome, the better the pregnancy rate. Yeah, Dr. Katz, that really resonated with me when you mentioned that in your meeting a few weeks ago of uh, if, you, if you had to defend one's understanding of what they signed, uh, when they can just point to several pieces of paper with medical jargon and say, you know, how could I possibly understood that? They just had me initial and we moved on versus a digital trail that involves video that's broken up to to modules. It's very clear how 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 that would be seen. And and you use the example of a jury. And I'm I'm just picturing we're using a civil jury. Well that's made up of people like me. That's made up of lay people. And if if one had to persuade one of those groups, which is how one would have the better understanding. It's clearly the digital model that may, maybe has a model that has video and not just the the same digital or the, the same consents that we've all had to sign that have several pages and terminology we're really not familiar with. Hey everyone, it's Griffin. This is the break in the show where normally I do a little commercial for our small engagement. And we do have a small engagement that's relevant to the COVID-19 business response. If you're cutting marketing, if you're trying to bring back your people as quickly as possible, if you're trying to build a cache of treatment ready patients, we do have that. But I would rather use this break to just ask if you find this useful, if you would share it with a colleague, either via email or on social media, we're doing everything we can to put out as many webinars, articles, free podcasts, all free resources to include as many people from the field as we possibly can to give you resources on how to manage 
and operate a fertility business or an IVF center during this time. And it's changing so quickly. So if you find this useful, I would really appreciate it if you would please share it with a colleague via email or via social media and help us grow the audience, but only if you find it valuable. And hopefully you are and back to your program. So I want to I want to add a, a another question here, and that's um, something that, that Taylor was wondering. Uh, I believe it might have been Jeff, but I believe Taylor had asked uh, how many folks are um, are using consents that are related to to COVID nineteen specifically. So I'm launching this poll right now, which is: Have you created or are using your own consents for treatment? or testing or visits that are specifically related to COVID-19. Yeah, and Griffin, while these are coming in, I, I just want to mention, so Jeff alluded to the fact that, you know, a lot of practices um, have developed these and, and have asked us to upload them, and we've spoken with them about their consents, and, um, and we've seen commonalities. Jeff is writing up a short piece about what we're seeing and summarizing some of that information. And I believe we've even gotten some okays from practices to, to share what they've developed, their consents. And so, Jeff, I don't know how this is, how or when this is going to be made available. I think it's going to be on our website. I'm not sure when, but when, if people are interested in sort of what we're seeing from the across the board point of view, uh, we'll make that available to you. Yeah, we've had some practices who are gracious enough to say, yes, if you do have other clinics that are in need right now of just some common language or just what we've put together, at least it's a, a sample of what clinics are doing. I think it's well written personally and it's very uh, comprehensive. Um, so we can definitely share it to anybody who, uh, who reaches out a sample template of what one of these COVID consents looks like if you don't have one already. And are you noticing that some of them already are using a, a template? I, I could certainly see someone asking, hey, John, what are you using? And, and some being circulated already. You said you're noticing some commonalities, but does it Yeah, I've, I've seen a couple of that I've seen a couple that are similar. So there's definitely some sharing going on. And I think, you know, of course, there's a network effects too. They are generally speaking different though. I think the people who have been really forward about this and want to get something online as quick as possible have reached out to their council and have gotten something written up as soon as possible. So we're just doing our best to, to aggregate those best practices. So yeah. uh, the folks that have answered now, uh, half have said yes, they created their own. 14% said uh, that they are using consents created by others, and 38% do not have consents specifically related to COVID-19. So, Griffin, I would say if a practice does not have a COVID-19 consent, that should be a very high priority because we're really working in an unknown situation, and that's really what informed consent is about. So, Jeff and Taylor, thanks for supporting them. I'm happy to give some information as well. I think every one of our programs has a COVID-19 consent in place. Uh, we, did, we did get a, a comment from Lisa, who is an attorney, that says to be cautious about posting any templates that you don't revert liability back to you also. I want to emphasize that again, but you might want to plaster that everywhere. Definitely appreciate that. And is very top of mind as Griffin kicked off our webinar, there will be disclaimers everywhere. Yeah, and, and we'll run, we are, uh, we're in contact with our lawyers to make sure that whatever we do 
we're either fully disclaiming or uh, not sharing things that uh, would be inappropriate or, you know, would make us potentially liable. We're, we're always very cognizant of, tr- of in- ensuring that we're not seen as providing any sort of legal or expert advice that we're not qualified for. So we could make this really meta and have a consent that someone <laughs> is facing yeah. their liability and have a video module explaining that, that they have to watch before they sign the consent. And we could tie everything full circle. Uh, absolutely. I like it. Um, so it, I'm going to have the our, our panelists sort of conclude with their thoughts about this. One person asked me if I have contact info for Engaged MD. I do, and I, I could leave these guys contact info. We can uh, disperse that in the, the response. Jeff and Taylor really did not want to sell Engaged MD. They really did not want to make it a commercial for Engaged MD. They told me that beforehand, and they're always good about that. But we have like an agreement from five years ago that I'm an authorized reseller of EngageMD. I don't know where that I don't know where that contract is, but I know we signed one. And uh, so, if you all use EngageMD after this because of this, or because you ever heard me talk about it on the podcast, you have to say Griff told me about it. I'm using you guys because Griff was the person that directed us to or Fertility Bridge did, and make sure that I get that commission. So it is a disclaimer. They're not promoting themselves and I'm only doing it because it's so relevant here, but we will send that, that contact info out in the, uh, in the follow-up email. So just please make a note of that, Megan. Gentlemen, how would you want to conclude? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to provide my closing thoughts. Um, the same thing that we've told our team, we're, we're really listening and we're, I think, uniquely positioned in that we have a platform to provide information and to help out during this time. So we're open to hearing any other thoughts. We're trying to create as much content as we can to help support clinics through this downtime, but would love if people have other ideas on how we can support the industry. Please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to have the conversation um, and provide as many tools as we can during a time that is really hard for everybody. Yeah, Dr. Katz, I'll give you the last word. I'll just say very briefly that I think this is an unprecedented time for everybody. We all have our expertise in different areas and our experience in different areas. And now's the time to be talking about our approaches, what we're doing, sharing our ideas, and really, really working together to, to try to get through this and to put practices and patients in the best positions possible. It's ever changing, but there's a lot of ideas and a lot of really smart people in this field. So I'm sure that if everybody works together and is collaborative, we'll look back and say that it was, it was a, a really creative time for, for the field. Well, speaking of, of creativity, we did have a question uh, from Chelsea that asked, what about something like Zoom to virtually witness consents that aren't available to use electronically? It sounds like they're in the process of getting signed up and they're in the process of, of converting to digital. But in the meantime, have you ever heard of something like that using Zoom yeah. to virtually witness consents? So it's, it's, it's actually really interesting. Uh, it's a great idea. It's actually something we've been talking about internally, how to take these um, telehealth uh, systems and use them not just in their generic form, but to support fertility specific workflows like witnessing consents. And actually we've developed sort of our own internal teleconferencing tool that, that we can use the technology, you know, if it makes sense to support 
workflows like that. So it's, it's still not clear yet what those ideal workflows will be, but witnessing consents is definitely uh, one of the ones that we've talked about. And I think it's a great idea. If you can figure out a way to do it with Zoom with like a screen share, then I think that is a, is a great sort of way to do it using the existing services. So I, I do think, yeah, that's the kind of thing, getting creative and doing that. How would you conclude, Dr. Katz? Well, Griff, I have two thoughts. The first one is, I really want to say thank you. Thank you to you. Thank you to Taylor. Thank you to Jeff for all that you're adding to the safety of the fertility world. All three of you bring incredible expertise and all of us really greatly appreciate it. We don't take it for granted. And as we're all saying, the pandemic will end. How it ends and when it actually ends we don't know yet, but I urge all the practices here on this webinar and all that you're in contact with to be prepared, be prepared to come out of this. We talked a lot about that today. Make sure your informed consents are all set to go um, and really put some thought. It will not be business as usual. And so please be prepared for the safety of your patients and the safety of your practice. Now is the time to make this conversion to digital. We we saw that a quarter of you are not doing any digital consents right now. Now is the time. About 40% of you didn't have any COVID-19 specific consents. And now is the time for that as well. It is business as unusual and will be for some time. Taylor, Jeff. Dr. Katz, thank you all so much for coming on the webinar. That's been, uh, that was really helpful. Have another webinar this time next Tuesday. I'm just trying to keep them coming every Tuesday, 4 p.m. Eastern. We're going to do one on finance next week. Dr. Adamson, Dr. David Adamson has agreed to do that with me as well as someone else who doesn't know that they're doing it with me yet. And then there, because there are so many players in the, in the finance space that I want to hear from. We're probably going to do two because I don't want to have four or five guests on one webinar. So we've got finance part one coming next week. Finance part two will come after that. And gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on and contributing. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thanks everybody for participating. Thank you. Thanks guys. You've been listening to the Coronavirus Business Response Series on Inside Reproductive Health. If you find our free resources to be valuable, we ask that you share this episode on social media or with a colleague in the fertility field. Subscribe for the latest insights on managing and owning an IVF center or fertility business during the COVID-19 pandemic at fertilitybridge.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts.